Well, sometimes when we go through a book of the Bible verse by verse, as, as we do here at Grace Bible Fellowship, you get to a text that maybe you would avoid if it was depending on your own wisdom. And one of the benefits of expository preaching, going verse by verse through a book, is, is that we have to wrestle with every text. And God speaks to us through his word. And we need all of his word, not just the parts that we think that we want to hear. And with kind of that for a bit of an introduction, you kind of know that we've arrived at one of those texts this morning. Our our text for this morning is Matthew 10, verses 16 to 23. And I I don't necessarily want you to turn there right now. We'll, We'll get there pretty soon. But this is a text that contemporary church growth wisdom would tell us to avoid. And I can almost hear the the so-called church growth experts say, Mike, if you you preach that, then you're going to scare some of the potential converts away. You know, I can hear them saying they'll think the message is ludicrous. They'll, they'll, They'll say it's a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Or who can listen to it? I think that's John 6, 66-ish, 60-ish there. It's a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? The experts would likely recommend bringing up what we see in our text, maybe at, at some later point with advanced disciples, you know, if they would recommend bringing up this text at all. Now, hopefully I've got your attention by now and you're kind of going, okay, well, I'm looking forward to seeing what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16 to 23. But just, just hang on a minute before we read it. I, I just want to say one thing first. We want to be a people and a church that trusts our ministry to the Holy Spirit. True wisdom says in Proverbs 3, 5 to 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And so we want to trust the Lord to work in our midst. We, if we lean on our own understanding, then we will surely fail. The Holy Spirit wrote Matthew and he wrote it through Matthew and the Holy Spirit will use what he wrote in our lives. And so it's much better for, to trust him to do his work than to think somehow that we know better, that, that maybe we shouldn't look at this passage. We need to remember constantly that, that this is God's work, that the, the, the building of the church is the work of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And God works supernaturally through his word to save sinners and to grow saints. God's work isn't really dependent on us, which I think some of the church growth experts forget about. And his work isn't dependent on our wisdom. Our own understanding might shy away from some of these hard texts, but only when we forget the supernatural power of God that works in the lives of his people through his word. And it really is only God's amazing grace in our lives that will enable us to accept Jesus' teaching in our text for today. And so with that, I want to open up to it and look at Matthew chapter 10, Look at starting at verse 16. Matthew 10, starting at verse 16, says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. 
Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, I'm not sure if that would maybe hit you on the first reading or not. You know, often we've kind of read this before, and uh, maybe we don't think too much about about what a particular text is saying. You know, but this um, this is no prosperity gospel stuff here. Instead of prosperity, actually, this text, Jesus promises us persecution. The prosperity gospel promotes health and wealth, right? The health and wealth. Come to Jesus and you'll be healthy and wealthy. Um, Jesus says here, and remember, this is for all of us. We've been kind of going through this verse by verse. and, and, And this whole section is really for every single disciple. Every one of us is called to be a missionary for the Lord Jesus Christ. But the, the, instead of health and wealth, Jesus says, you are sheep in the midst of wolves. And health and wealth has kind of a nice ring to it. So I, I thought, well, how about it? You're going to be eaten and beaten. Um, eaten and beaten has a nice ring to it, I think. Come to Jesus and, and that's what we can promise you. Another one I thought of is you will be jailed and flailed. Jailed and flailed. I, I like that one too. But, um, it's just, you know, not going to appeal to some people. You know, it's just, it's just not health and wealth. I think to the natural man, that's, I'd rather have that, but that's not what we're promised here. We're promised jailed and flailed. False religion tries to appeal to what sinful man already wants. And they say something like, well, if you just add Jesus to your already great life, he will give you health and wealth and peace and joy. We say, come to Jesus and you will be like sheep among wolves. All men will hate you. They will deliver you over to courts. They will flog you, drag you and and deliver you to death. And even your own children might rise against you and put you to death. But then the text goes on and says, but don't worry about that. The Holy Spirit will help you in those times. And so you'll know exactly what to say. Because there's, you know, there's nothing like not knowing what to say before a flogging, right? Are you guys with, are you guys still with me this morning, right? You're, anyone kind of relating to that? Like, what? You're going to help me know what to say after I get flogged or, you know? And, and, and I'm, I'm kind of joking, but, um, I, I want you to see what a hard sell this is to the world. This is a hard sell. It's, it's really an impossible sell unless the Holy Spirit does something supernatural in your life. 
Only a supernatural, new creation, eye-opening, faith-granting, life-giving conversion can make you willing to serve Christ on these terms. Only with an eternal vision will we be able to see this the way Paul did in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, like courts and floggings, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, that was 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Only a spiritual resurrection, being made alive with Christ in the new birth, will prepare us to be put to death. And even then, I think if we're honest, we have to recognize that, that we fall short of the perspective that Jesus wants us to have here. You know, we're supposed to be so dedicated to the mission that we see persecution not as something negative for ourselves, but we see persecution as an opportunity to bear witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing perspective that God calls us to have here. More persecution means more spirit-empowered testimony for Jesus' sake. And so again, what a perspective that we are called to have here. Now, how do we get to the place where we're willing to be sheep in the midst of wolves? And the text, I admit, doesn't directly answer that question, but, but indirectly it does. Again, I've been saying the past two weeks that, that as we've been looking at Matthew 10, that we are all missionaries. We are all sent by Jesus as his witnesses if we are Christians. And so how do we get to this, to this text and not, not run away and, and not say like, okay, that's it. No more following Jesus if this is going to be the cost? How do we get to this place? And I think the answer is, is that we need to know who Jesus is. And Matthew's shown us who he is, hasn't he? He's God the Son. Jesus is the one who can forgive our sins. Jesus is the one and the only one who can make us right with God. He is the one who promises treasure in heaven, who will reward the persecuted. He's the, the rewarder of the persecuted, and he's worthy of our lives and of our worship. And that's what Matthew has shown us to bring us to this place. And so the answer to how do we do this is that a high Christology prepares us for the low esteem that the world is going to have of us. Or a worthy Christ enables us to endure the unjust persecutions of, that the world will send our way. A high view of Christ makes us willing to do anything for his sake. And that's exactly what we need. A high Christology, a, a high view of Christ that says, I just want to live for him and honor him and do whatever I can for him and for his sake. And so this text might not be super encouraging of itself, but it's sitting on a foundation of a glorious Christ who is worthy of everything Jesus promises us in these verses, all of the persecution that he tells us will come our way, he is worthy of all of that. And keeping that, in, I want you to keep that in mind as we work through this passage. The health and wealth gospel is a lie. Jesus is not going to give you everything that you want. 
Some people preach a phony Jesus who will cost you nothing and supposedly give you everything. And in that phony system, Jesus is no treasure. He's a a way to get earthly treasure. Jesus then becomes a means to an end. And if that's how you see Jesus, then you are still on your way to hell. Jesus is not a means to an end. Jesus is not a way to earthly treasure. Jesus himself is the treasure. The true Jesus, the one that Matthew presents here in this gospel, is a worthy Jesus, and he's worthy of suffering for. He himself is a treasure, and knowing him is everything, even if it costs everything. A Jesus worth suffering for is truly worth living for. And that is the Jesus that Matthew presents to us in his gospel. And only that true Lord can make us willing to take on his mission. And so with that, let's look at our text and we're going to call it warnings for disciples in a hostile world. Oh. <laughs> wow. Warnings for disciples in a hostile world. Warnings for disciples in a hostile world. And there's three warnings here. They're warnings for us as we pursue our mission of making disciples. And the first one is an illustration or a a picture. We are sheep in the midst of wolves. And then the next two kind of unpack that picture and show us what it looks like to be a sheep in the midst of wolves. All three warn us that we will face or what we will face in this hostile world when we serve Jesus as his disciples. Jesus tells us right up front, early on in this gospel, he tells us what it will cost to be a disciple of his. And in a way, this is, this text is almost like a prophecy of the entire church age. Jesus is kind of looking forward from, from sending out his 12 to Galilee all the way through the church age, even to the second coming through the tribulation. And he's telling us, just generally speaking, what Life is going to be like in this world as a disciple of his. And so the first warning for disciples in a hostile world is number one, uh, I called it disciples versus wolves. We're going to have this kind of verses going on here. Disciples versus wolves. Look at verse 16. It says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, up until now, the people that, that we're trying to reach here as we go on this mission have been called sheep. Look back at Matthew 9, 36. And when he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So these helpless, harassed sheep, they needed laborers to be sent out to harvest these sheep. Jesus has compassion on them, and they're like sheep, and, and, uh, and so he wants laborers, and he says in verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so the disciples were to pray earnestly for laborers, and then Jesus chose 12 of those praying men, and he sent them out as laborers to reach these sheep. And then look at chapter 10 and verse 6. They were were sent there to the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. But now Jesus says that these sheep that I am sending to you are also like wolves. And so they're, they're lost sheep. They've gone astray. They're harassed and helpless. They're down and discouraged. And, and I have compassion for them. But they're also wicked. They're also ungodly. They're also predators. And they will eat you if you are not careful. They might even eat you if you are careful. Now, before this, the disciples might have thought that they were laborers. They, they could have had a kind of a, a nice picture of themselves. They're laborers. Everyone else is sheep. And, and they might have been able to think that they were above those that they were sent to. But it's not so. They, or, or we, are also sheep. We're not lost sheep, but we are sheep. And so Jesus says, behold... And, and, and that word there means take notice, pay attention, look at this. Jesus is sending us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, I, I probably don't need to tell you this, but wolves eat sheep, right? Wolves eat sheep. Wolves would come into the midst of sheep to hunt and to kill. But here, the sheep now are going into the wolves, We go to the wolves to reach them with the message of the gospel, to tell them of salvation through Jesus Christ. We go to the wolves to offer them reconciliation with God. And we proclaim the gospel to them in the hope that they will turn from their wicked ways and be saved. But most of all, we do this that God would be glorified. We do this because we know that God is going to be glorified in the salvation of those people who he transforms. They will go from wolves to sheep, from lovers of selves to lovers of God, from lovers of selves to worshipers of God. And so we know that by converting the wolves to Christ, they will bring glory to God and worship him forever in heaven. They will glorify God by their worship from the moment of their salvation onwards. And so we go with this hope that that we will glorify God by saving these wolves. But do you know also that we glorify God just by proclaiming the gospel in a hostile world? Our testimony and our faithfulness and our, our message glorify God even if no one repents. Just proclaiming the gospel in the midst of a hostile world and enduring whatever comes our way, that glorifies God as well. God will be glorified. That is, he is going to be shown to be the glorious God that he is when we joyfully serve him even though we are treated like sheep for the slaughter even though we are persecuted and afflicted. Now, sheep are basically defenseless against predators. They're kind of useless against predators. They're not fast. They don't have any weapons. They're not strong. They can't really kick nothing. They they really have nothing to protect themselves. They, They can't fight back. And that's probably what we should draw from this picture. We We don't resist an evil person. Now, the other thing about sheep, and we all know this, they're notoriously dumb. They are notoriously dumb. Now, thankfully, we are not to be like that. Instead, Jesus says, so be wise as serpents. So you're a sheep, but now you're to be a sheep that's as wise as a serpent. Now, in verse 16, it says, so be wise as serpents. And so is therefore, 
there. That's the word therefore. And so if we're going to be sheep in the midst of wolves, you've got to at least be a wise sheep. And wise there, that word wise pertains to understanding associated with insight and wisdom. Again, understanding that's associated with insight and wisdom. It means to be sensible, to be thoughtful, to be prudent. means to be wise. And the idea is that I think we are to be careful. We're to be careful. Snakes are, are wary. Snakes are, are cautious. The snakes avoid danger where possible. They, they get out of the way. And so prudent means showing care and, and thought for the future. That's what that word means, to, to show care and be thoughtful about the future. And of course, this picture of a, a, a wise snake, a, a, a prudent snake, brings us to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, where it says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made. And the Greek translation of that verse used that same word that's translated wise in our text. The serpent was wiser than any. And so we're to be careful, we're to be thoughtful sheep among the wolves. But we're not to be so careful that we don't do anything. We're not to be so careful that we don't say anything. And so we're to be wise as serpents and then innocent as doves. And doves are viewed as harmless and gentle. Again, non-retaliatory, kind of like a sheep. The word translated innocent there means pure or innocent. And so we're, we're to be wise, but we're not to be crafty in any kind of deceptive way like the serpent was. The, the, the same word is used two other times, this word translated innocent here. Uh, it's re- used in Romans sixteen nineteen. It says, Paul says there, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And so there's a different word for wise in that text, Romans 16, 19, but that same word innocent where Paul wants us to be innocent in regards to, to what is evil. And Philippians 2, 14 and 15 says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. There's our word that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the world or without blemish in the midst of a crooked, crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So we're to be blameless, innocent, without blemish. And that's how we shine as lights in the midst of a wicked world. So kind of to summarize all of these animal metaphors, you're sheep in the midst of wolves, but don't be dumb. Be a a snake-like sheep. Be wise, be thoughtful, but don't be too snake-like. Don't have any bad intentions for the wolves. Don't be wicked. Be a dove-like snake sheep, innocent and harmless. You got that dove-like snake sheep. You guys are set now. The good thing Jesus kind of unpacks this a little bit more for us later. But don't be too naive, and I think that's the idea of this dove here. The, the thing about doves is that they're, they're so unassuming that they could easily be caught in a trap. And so we, we're not to be like that. We're to be wary, but not too wary. Don't get caught in a trap. Flee to the next city. And the balance on this whole thing is going to be hard. I, I admit it's going to be hard. Don't be so careful that you never share the gospel 
But don't needlessly get caught in the, a wolf's mouth either. Um, a wolf's mouth either. Um, so that's kind of the idea of, of what's going on here. We're sheep among wolves, not sheep among sheep. So don't be too naive. Now we're going to leave the illustration and the, the metaphor here, and we're going to leave the animals, and we're going to come back to the world of men. And from here on, there's going to be two cycles. And each cycle has a pair of warnings and then an encouragement for us. So there's going to be a pair of warnings and then an encouragement. We'll see disciples before Jews and then disciples before Gentiles and then a promise of help from the Holy Spirit. That's the first cycle. And then the second cycle, we'll see the disciples before family and the disciples really before all men will be hated by all men. And then there's a promise of salvation and the Lord's coming. And so two cycles with two warnings and then an encouragement. And the first cycle then is in, in, in verses 17 to 20. And I just called it disciples versus authorities. And so we had disciples versus wolves and now disciples versus authorities. And the first authority is the Jews in verse 17. And what is described here likely didn't happen until after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. So Jesus is looking again beyond the little trip to Galilee to the, to a time when his disciples would be persecuted by the Jewish authorities. Verse 17, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Now this would most likely happen at a time when Jesus' disciples were Jews themselves and tied to the synagogue in some way. And the Jewish synagogue, it it was a place for worship, but it was also used for public events and gatherings and as a courthouse as well. And the synagogue had judges with authority to punish certain crimes, and the maximum punishment that they would give was 39 lashes, 40 lashes minus one. Deuteronomy 25 allowed no more than 40 lashes, And it seemed that the Jews would, to be careful not to go over and and break the law, they would always do 39 lashes, 40 minus 1, just to kind of keep themselves safe from, from ever breaking that law. Now, flogging is to be beat with a whip or to lash or to scourge. Jesus himself was flogged according to John 19 and verse 1. Same word is used there, John 19, 1. And Jesus predicted beforehand that that would happen in Matthew 20 verses 18 and 19. It says this, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Paul also was flogged in this manner as well. And I actually want you to turn with me then to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where we see this fulfilled in Paul's life. Second Corinthians 11, verse 24 and 25 Paul says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A a, A night and a day I was adrift. 
at sea. And so five times Paul had received this 40 lashes minus one. That's probably what Jesus is referring to there when they'll flog you in their synagogues. Now, Paul even said that he learned to boast, excuse me, in such trials. He, He called it weakness and he said he could boast in his weakness because then the God-glorifying power of Christ would rest on him. Just look over at chapter 12 and verse 9. 2 Corinthians twelve nine. But he, and that's the Lord there from verse 8, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response then is, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's the perspective that we need as we face these kinds of trials. We can almost boast in our weakness be, and, and rest in the God-glorifying power of Christ that will help us in the midst of these difficulties. And so with that, let's go back to to our text here, verse 17. It says, beware of men. Watch out for men. Be, Be alert of men. Mankind will deliver you. They, and, and deliver there is that same word that's used frequently for what Judas did to Jesus. He was, he delivered him up. He betrayed him. And so men are going to deliver us. And this word deliver happens three or four times in the passage. Men will deliver you to the courts and flog you. And then in verse 18, it says, and, and so there's more. So they will deliver you and flog you, and there's more. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So you will be dragged and you will be brought. And the word is used there of being arrested or being brought to court, dragged to court, uh, arrested and, and detained you, that's going to happen. There, there, were, there were no governors or kings in Galilee, and so we know, again, this looks forward to the mission to the Gentiles. And notice the reason that Jesus gives for this. He says, it's for my sake. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Here's why we endure these things. It's, it's for Jesus' sake. It's for his benefit and his glory. See, his purpose becomes our purpose. His mission becomes our mission. And note, not, and not only for his sake, but also as a testimony to them. That's how the Legacy Standard Bible translates it. To bear witness is the ESV. To bear witness. That's the other reason there. The, the evil governors and kings of the world and the courts, they, they all think that they're punishing us. But God has a greater purpose. He's going to open up gospel opportunities as they try to punish and discipline us. And that word translated to bear witness is the Greek word mart, um, marturion, marturion. And it, it came to be used for those witnesses who were martyred for Christ. And you can kind of hear marturion, martyred. So this word, this witnessing word, this bearing testimony word, it's kind of like a a court-like word where you testify to something. 
This word came to be used for the witnesses that were martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are, brothers and sisters, we are to give our lives and to give our testimony even unto death. And that testimony will be for the courts and the rulers as well as for the broader public, for the Gentiles beyond them. And this is how we're to see, to see persecution. An opportunity for, a, and really a, a special opportunity to bear witness for the Lord. And when we have that perspective, when we see these kind of things happening to us as an opportunity to testify for the Lord, then we're going to take comfort in the promise that the Lord gives us in verses 19 and 20. So look at verse 19. It says, when, and notice there, it doesn't say if, it says when, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And so in a situation when you are delivered over to the authorities, maybe a, a big trial is coming up and, and you're going to be in court, Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious how you are to speak. In, in other words, don't be anxious about the way that you speak, the, the manner of your speech. Also, don't be anxious what you are to say. In other words, don't be anxious about the content. Don't be anxious about the arguments that you want to make. And why are we not to be anxious? You know, I mean, like you just think about going to court and having to testify before governors and kings, even just being before a king or a governor would make most of us anxious. I, I'm sure it would make me anxious, but don't be anxious, even in these difficult times, because what we say and how we say it will be given us. God is going to help us and he will give us what to say and how to say it. And it says it will be given in that hour, not maybe days beforehand. And besides, in, in those kind of situations, you often aren't going to know what they're going to ask you beforehand anyways. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't prepare somewhat beforehand or that we shouldn't think of, of some things to say before the courts and the governors, but we're definitely not to be anxious. We're definitely not to be afraid in those kind of situations. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will speak through us. And this would probably function very much in the way that, that the Holy Spirit spoke through the biblical writers using our minds and our vocabularies and our speaking styles and our mannerisms and, and really using us to speak what He wants. And when I say that, I don't mean to say that, that we're going to be inerrant or anything, but this is a wonderful promise that... that in one of the most trying times of our lives, the Holy Spirit promises that He will help us and speak through us and, and, and aid us in giving a testimony for the Lord in the midst of these kind of persecutions. It says, the Spirit of your Father, the Holy Spirit, and, and it's literally there, He will speak in you. The Spirit is inside of us. And this is one of the only times in Matthew where we see the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Holy Spirit being in the believer as we kind of see later on in the rest of the New Testament. Now the history of the church, the history of the disciples of Christ demonstrates God's faithfulness in fulfilling 
the promise of Jesus here. And so we see the, in, in those trying hours when we look at like things like what Martin Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me. Those are, those are times when the Holy Spirit worked through those men who were being persecuted and, and the Holy Spirit spoke through them. And that's why we cherish those last words of the martyrs of the Christian faith. Now, one more thing I need to say here before we leave this text. Apparently, some people take this as a promise that means that they don't need to prepare for teaching or preaching because they trust the Holy Spirit to give them what they should say in that hour. And and so many of the commentators mention this that, you know, I, I almost just think it's ridiculous, but I thought, you know, maybe I need to address this. So I'm just going to say something about this. First of all, I would say that obviously such people didn't prepare when they taught this passage, because this passage clearly doesn't say that when you preach, don't prepare nothing and don't be anxious because the Spirit's going to give you exactly what to say. So that's the first thing. Second thing I'd say is there's a big difference between proclaiming the gospel in a court setting and giving a defense of, of whatever supposed law you broke when, when you were going about Jesus' business preaching the gospel to the world. And there's a big difference between that and preaching or teaching a passage of Scripture. And so when you're teaching or preaching a passage of Scripture, it's more appropriate, 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And so a big difference between a gospel testimony in court, each and every one of us should be ready to preach the gospel at any time versus teaching a passage of Scripture. That takes study, that takes work. And so we, you know, we rely on the Holy Spirit, but not so much that we don't even think about what we're going to say. Um, especially if when you speak extemporaneously like I do, you're going to just say something that you wish you didn't say anyway. So it's better to prepare, make some notes. Um, so don't use that passage out of context. We need to do our best to handle God's word. That's all I'm going to say about that. So the next warning and and promise cycle is in verses 21 to 23. And this is now disciples versus family. Disciples versus family. Verses 21 to 23. And again, there's there's kind of two groups roughly outlined here who are going to deliver us over. And, And the first is family in verse 21. And then verse 22 says, and... You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, all there in verse 22, we're going to do verse 22 first. All isn't necessarily every person who ever lived, but humanity in general or, or all kinds of people will hate us for Jesus's namesake. Now, again, when we think about this, all people or all, just, it's just literally all there. You will be hated by all. We would hope that our mission of proclaiming the gospel is going to be successful with some people. And so they're not going to hate us, at least um, not once they're converted, they won't hate us. But Jesus doesn't even say anything in this context about any success in the, in the ministry at all. This is just, this, this Matthew chapter 10 is all persecution, not being received, very, maybe a, a faint hope of somebody receiving you kind of later around verse 40 or so, but really a, a very um, 
un, unpromising of success kind of a, a thing that Jesus pro, tells his disciples. He just mostly warns them and warns us about the dangers and says very little about the success that we'll have in our ministry. But we, we assume that there's going to be some success, that God is going to work and save some people, and we know that really from other passages, not so much from Matthew 10. But verse 22, we will be hated by all. Now, verse 21, though, deals with family. Even some of our own families will persecute us at times. And so look at verse 21. It says, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Now, here we have kind of what I am going to call a, a sort of double worst case scenario. Not only is it the family who are going to deliver us, and they're going to deliver us over, and, and I think it's much harder to take when your family delivers you over than some synagogue official, you know, some, some Gentile pagan person in a court system. It's much harder to see that this is people in our own family that would do this. But not only that, they also here deliver us over to death. So far it's been floggings and courts. Now it's even to death. Even children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death and parents or the father, his child. And so this is a sad extreme. And I, and I really, I can't imagine how hard either one of those things would be. And, and I don't mean martyr them there, but the betrayal of a brother or the betrayal of our own children. But at the same time, what do we, what do we expect, right? We know from scripture that mankind is sinful. We know that we live in a, a wicked world and some people are deceived and are gonna, are gonna hate Christ and hate us. And if this wicked world would betray Christ and put him to death, then why should we expect any kind of better treatment if we are faithful representatives of him. In fact, look at Matthew 24, uh, or sorry, Matthew 10.24. Matthew 10.24, it says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Belzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And so if they slandered and killed the only sinless man who ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ, how much more will they find opportunity to do so to us? And so we should be beginning to see then why we will need wisdom among the wolves. Now later on in this same context, Jesus is going to say that we need to love him more than our families. And we need to be willing to even lose our lives for his sake. Look at verse 34 of Matthew 10. Verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. 
And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And again, in that passage, we see that high Christology that, that, that there's a, a love for Christ in our lives that's above the love that we have for even our own earthly relations or even our own lives, that we love him above everything else. That's the only way that we can take on this mission that Jesus calls us to here. Now, this division in our family and our families is, is not because we reject our family We should love our families and we should love our families even beyond what most people do because we have the Holy Spirit living in us whose fruit is love. And so the love of Christ for us teaches us how to love others even and especially how to love our families. But again, we we are so committed to the Lord Jesus Christ that even some of our family who's not converted are going to come against us. And that's what Jesus is telling us here. Now, look back then at verse 22 again. It says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And so again, you will be delivered, you will be put to death, and you will be hated by all. And notice there, it's again, for my name's sake. For my namesake, Jesus says. And this is very much the same as for my sake in verse 18. Again, our allegiance to Jesus and everything that he represents is why this persecution will arise, even from within our own families. Our our allegiance to him is going to bring on persecution from the satanic world, from Satan and and the, the... his demons through the world and they will hate us because of Jesus's name. Now, as we kind of think about that, don't forget what we learned in Matthew five and go back to Matthew five, 10 to 12. The, the f- final beatitudes there, Matthew five ten says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. That's another reason why this will happen. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. And notice there, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so the good news when we think about the possibility of betrayal from our own families is that ours is the kingdom of heaven and our reward is great. If we suffer this kind of persecution, our reward in heaven will be great. Now verse 22 ends with this promise here. Look at verse 22 again. You will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, we won't be saved out of persecution. Remember, we just saw that some of us will even be put to death, but enduring to the end means remaining faithful to Christ no matter what the wolves do. And I love how the the Greek lexicon of the New Testament put it. It said, to maintain a belief. This is what it means to endure. To maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition. 
That's what we're called to do here. And if we do that, if we continue and maintain our belief and maintain the course of action and continue as a witness for Jesus Christ, even in the face of opposition, if we do that, we will be saved. In other words, we're going to enjoy the full and final experience of salvation. It doesn't mean there that we're going to be born again if we do that. We're already born again. We're already saved in that sense. But if we endure to the end, we will experience the full riches of everything that God promised us in salvation. Endurance itself doesn't save us. Christ saves us by grace through faith. But salvation by Christ will will continue to believe him right to the end. If we are truly saved, we will endure. And if we deny him, we will show that we never were truly saved. We never really believed. Or perhaps if we deny him, we show a weak faith. We can be forgiven for not enduring. Peter was. Remember, Peter denied Christ three times, but he repented and was strengthened by Christ. And by grace, he endured to the end after that. And I love what Jesus said to Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one and 32. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, not if you turn again, but when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so true salvation is God's work from beginning to end. And Jesus intercedes for us. He prays for us that our faith, the faith that he worked in us, that that faith will not fail. And Peter knew this well, and, and so he strengthened the brothers after he turned again, just like Jesus had prayed for. And in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Peter says this, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Peter says, bless God. God caused us to be born again and he guards us by his power. And he guards us by his power through faith and for this salvation that's that's going to be revealed in the end. And it's only through this power of God guarding us and keeping us that we can endure to the end. And whether that end is the end of this age or whether that end is the end of our lives, if we are faithful to the end, we will experience salvation. And so don't miss the encouraging promise here. You will be hated by all for my namesake, verse 22, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that but there is a great contrast. The one who endures, you'll be hated by all, but you will be saved. And we do well to keep that in mind when we're in trials of various kinds, to keep our eternal salvation in mind. And so again, we're going to be delivered over to the courts and flogged and dragged before governors, delivered over to death, even our own children in some cases rising against us, putting us to death. But, but the one who endures will be saved. 
And such a one will enjoy the full blessings of salvation forever. And you will see the glory of Christ and of the Father. And you will dwell with God forever. And you will experience joy unspeakable. Freedom from sin. Innumerable holy companions and all the fullness of everything that God has promised. And you will be saved. And that is forever. And as much as I'd like to end on that note, we need to look at verse 23. It says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And so we are free to flee persecution when when we can, if we can, if it seems wise and good to us. If, If the persecution gets too intense in one place, we're to flee to another place. And that's how the gospel spreads. Even in the book of Acts, the persecution spread the gospel and, and God's word goes to new places and reaches new people. But the second half of the verse seems to picture an ongoing ministry to Israel and the towns of Israel right up to the return of Christ. It says, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. And this ministry to Israel is especially going to happen during the tribulation, but really it, it happens throughout the, the whole church age. And before that ministry is finished, especially in the tribulation time, Jesus is going to return. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come. And so again, brethren, we are sheep in the midst of wolves. We've seen these warnings for disciples in a hostile world. We'll, we see the disciples against wolves, disciples versus authorities, and disciples even against their own family. The, the family rising up, the authorities rising up, the wolves rising up against us. I want to close just with reading Romans eight thirty-five to 39. And, and actually, you might as well just turn there and see that with your own eyes. Romans just kind of seems to summarize this well. Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But look at Paul's answer in verse 37. No. So who's going to separate us? Are any of these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, any of that going to be able to separate us from the love of Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so even these persecutions that we're warned about in this passage, they are not able to separate us from the love of Christ for us. And we're going to sing now, In Christ Alone as a response. In in Christ alone, it's the only way that we can be faithful to what Jesus calls us to in this text. Let's pray. Father, we are looking forward to singing in Christ alone. 
And just pray that you would indeed strengthen us in Christ to, to live what you've called us to, to, to count the cost and to love Christ above our own family, above our own lives, above our own comfort. We pray that you would grant us that love, that we would know this love of Christ, the love that he had for us, that he would die for us. You are a great God and a, a great Savior. And so, Father, we pray that, that we would give up everything for you, that we would live to worship you, that we would take on your mission, no matter what the cost, that we could be part of glorifying you in this world and that we could enjoy you forever as you promise us in this text. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.